Welcome to Ebenezer Baptist Church on November 16, 2014, 10.30 a.m. Today's message is Grace Gravity by Pastor Brad Julian. Based on scripture reading, Psalms 17, verse 1 to 12. Well, good morning, friends. My, some of you are a long ways away there. Well, welcome here this morning. My name is Brad Julin, and I've uh, been a pastor here in the Lower Mainland for many years, and uh, I, uh, I'm delighted to be here this morning. Uh, my wife, Carol, and I, uh, as was mentioned, we live in Langley, and um, we're doing the grandparenting thing right now. We have, uh, we have three children, uh, all married, and six grandchildren. Um, you know, we did the uh, jump into this grandparenting thing fairly quickly. We had three born in um, in six weeks, I think it was. So, you know, we went from zero to three in a hurry. And uh, fortunately, my wife is truly one of the great grandmas out there. Um, and uh, we have two boys that live eight doors up the street and three more that live six blocks away. And then we just had a little baby born uh, in Richmond. So, uh, so we're keeping busy with the grandparenting thing right now. Um, I don't know what I can tell you about me. Uh, my, my hobbies include uh, astronomy and woodworking and uh, do a little kayaking. Uh, we built some kayaks a few years ago and enjoy that. So that's a little about uh, Brad and Carol. We sang a song this morning, uh, and the words were, I know who goes before me. I know who stands behind. The God of angel armies is always by my side. Can I just ask you a question? Does it always feel like that? For some of us, it does. For many of us, we go through times in our lives when we are kind of wondering, God, where are you? And, uh, and so the message this morning is very much uh, pointing us perhaps to an answer to that question. In the late um, 1960s, yeah, you can dim those lights, Alan, uh, uh, all you want, uh, we're I'm actually going to be fairly dependent on putting some pictures up. It's kind of graphically oriented this morning. In the late 1960s, a new form of art took shape in the eastern United States. It was reviled by many and understood by very few. It was practiced in secrecy in order to be known to the world. It was called graffiti. Now, I know most of us don't think of graffiti as art. Graffiti in its present form had its roots in Philadelphia in the 1960s. At first, it was simply a few people writing or spraying their nicknames, or as they are called, tags, all over the city. Um, and then spraying a large number of those tags came to be called bombing the city. And uh, two of the first in Philadelphia to uh, consciously go out and bomb the city with their tags. Uh, their, their tags were Cornbread and Cool Earl. Um, so uh, I'm not sure those names would get very far today. Um, in the 1970s, graffiti took off in New York City. The form it took there has come to be known in art history as the New York School. It has had a profound effect on graffiti around the world. 
You see, graffiti is very much about gaining attention and recognition for yourself. In the dark world of the inner city, graffiti became a way to make a name for yourself, to be significant in a countercultural way. Early on, odd names were used as tags to create curiosity and gain recognition with the public. Artists couldn't use their real names because, of course, that was uh, illegal. But one of the first kings of graffiti, his, uh, his tag was Tacky 186. And the reason he chose that was that Tacky was a family nickname and 186 was the street he lived on. And so he was a messenger in New York City, and he rode the subway, and he bombed the city with his tag. And the newspapers picked it up, and his fame spread. Another way of gaining attention and making your presence known was by the sheer number of tags uh, you bombed around the city. And that led to a massive increase in graffiti painting. But as the volume of graffiti increased, writers needed to develop new ways to make their tags stand out. And so they began to develop calligraphy and designs as part of their tags. Graffiti began to shift from mere vandalism to art. And as it did, a number of things began to happen. An entire graffiti subculture started developing in New York City with its own rules and values. Fairly quickly, the focus shifted from walls to subway trains. In the ghetto values of the graffiti subculture, greatness was measured as much by the risk involved as by the artist's talent. And so by tagging subway cars, an artist's work would travel around the city. It toured the city for a few weeks before the car was pulled off the line and uh, cleaned. But it was also much riskier because of the transit police and also because of the proximity to moving trains. Well, the drive to gain people's attention continued to drive change in the form. And the next development in graffiti was a change in scale. Artists found larger spray nozzles for spray paint, and they continued to increase the size of their letters and designs until they were the full height of a subway car. Graffiti crews, rather than individuals, worked as teams to paint entire cars. Go ahead and click one more there. Yeah, there we are. They painted that entire car, friends. From 1975 to 1977, graffiti writing uh, reached its peak in New York. The transit authority was in financial straits and couldn't afford enough security to guard the trains at night or the manpower to clean up painted cars quickly. And eventually, teams managed to paint entire parked trains in one night. But in the 1980s, graffiti in New York began to decline. The Transit Authority increased its budget for security and began pulling graffiti cars quickly off the line. The risk involved in the brief lifespan of the art began to reduce the number of artists. By May 1989, the Transit Authority declared victory over the graffiti movement and announced that no marked cars would run on the line. It was the beginning of the clean train era. Most graffiti shifted back to walls or over to freight trains. You ever Notice the freight trains around here? You ever, you ever tried to really look at graffiti and try and figure out what it was? 
I mean, sometimes you're looking and you're going, what is that, right? Well, most graffiti shifted back to walls or over to freight trains. But a few die-hard artists believe that all such graffiti is fake, that the defining medium of the art is the subway car. And so they continue to wage their artistic war with the New York Transit Authority, even though their work either never runs or only briefly runs. Did you know that about uh, graffiti? Is any of that familiar to you? certainly wasn't to me. And for most of us, uh, we find uh, graffiti to be uh, vandalism, don't we? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Am I right? We, we, we tend to think of it as vandalism, right? Um, Uh-oh, I moved my microphone. There we go. Um, let's talk about the nature of graffiti for a second. Because graffiti has been used by gangs to mark their turf or polit uh, political activists to make a statement. But as an art form, it's characterized by three things. The first is this. It is underground art. That means that the artist is never seen but he is known by his work. The art is making his presence known. Secondly, it is countercultural art. That means that it is the sign of another culture that lives by a different set of values. It goes against the flow. The dominant culture owns the billboards and sells the TV ads and the radio ads. The dominant culture promotes itself and its values and doesn't want to hear from those who reject its value system. But what is seen as vandalism by the dominant culture is viewed as art by the graffiti subculture of the ghetto. To those who own property, it's a crime. To those who cannot afford property, it is a statement that they exist and that they count too. The third thing about graffiti is it is identity art. It is always about a name, friends. It's always about a name. The art points to the identity of the artist. The letters are hard to figure out, and the name may be unknown to us, but it's pointing us to someone, and the name is telling us something significant about the artist. Now, as we come to Psalm 17, which we had read this morning from the NIV, David records a prayer to God, and the exact circumstances in which it was written are not preserved. But it's clear from the passage that it was a time of danger and opposition from people seeking his destruction. It's hard to understand how God works sometimes. His willingness to allow people free choice is astounding because the choices of others affect us, right? Evil is often allowed to flourish and to dominate our culture and our lives. Prayer for relief goes unanswered, and at times it seems that God has hung up the phone and left town. And so David prays for the defeat of his enemies. He prays for God to act and to bring justice but knowing that God is not in as big a hurry as he is, he prays for one more thing in the meantime. He prays for God to paint some graffiti around town. 
I want you to listen as I read Psalm 17 once again, but this time I'm going to read from the Bible paraphrase, The Message. Psalm 17, The Message by Eugene Peterson. Listen while I build my case, God, the most honest prayer you'll ever hear. Show the world I'm innocent. In your heart you know I am. Go ahead, examine me from the inside out. Surprise me in the middle of the night. You'll find I'm just what I say I am. My words don't run loose. I'm not trying to get my way in the world's way. I'm trying to get your way, your word's way. I'm staying on your trail. I'm putting one foot in front of the other, and I'm not giving up. I call to you, God, because I'm sure of an answer. So answer, bend your ear, listen sharp, paint grace graffiti on the fences. Take in your frightened children who are running from the neighborhood bullies straight to you. Keep your eye on me. Hide me under your cool wing feathers from the wicked who are out to get me, from mortal enemies closing in. Their hearts are hard as nails. Their mouths blast hot air. They're after me, nipping my heels, determined to bring me down. Lions ready to rip me apart. Young lions poised to pounce. Today, we want to look at the idea of grace graffiti, friends. Grace graffiti. This psalm starts in a surprising way. David begins like a scene from the TV show Law and Order. He, he says, listen, God, while I build my case. He is a lawyer presenting a case to the one who judges all things, and something has gone wrong in the city. You ever feel like things are going wrong in this city? There are days, aren't there? <laughs> People are getting away with murder. Justice is nowhere to be seen, and so David is asking the judge to come and bring justice. He is asking God to show up and investigate the situation and put a stop to evil. He is asking God to make his presence known. But David recognized that if you ask God to investigate evil and bring justice, the first place he is going to start is with you. He says, go ahead, examine me from the inside out. Surprise me in the middle of the night. You'll find I'm just what I say I am. You know what, friends? That is not a claim of perfection. Sometimes we read something like that and we, we think God's talking about being perfect. No. It's not a claim of perfection, but of authenticity. God what you see is what you get. I'm not putting on a show here. He has confessed and acknowledged the sin in his life. He's turned away from things in his life that he's aware that do not honor God. He isn't playing games as a Christian. He has, he has integrity. If he had a hidden video camera in his house, he'd be the same person in the privacy of his home that he is in public or he is at church. And I think we need to just pause for a moment and ask ourselves, are we the same person at home that we are at church, that we are at work? 
Are you the same person at night that you appear to be in the day? The same person in public you appear to be in private? Is what people see what they actually get? We don't need more hypocrisy in the church. We need to be far more concerned about pleasing God than pleasing men because God does see us at night. God does see us in private. He does see us when we think no one else is looking. And God doesn't play favorites. He has a nasty habit of doing what we ask when we ask according to his will. And if, if you want God to judge evil and to deal with injustice in the world, if you want God to deal with that ex who is hurting you and your children, or the boss who ruined your chance for promotion, be aware that God has an irritating tendency to start with us first. Perhaps you know this passage in 1 Peter 4, verse 17, where it looks forward to a time when God judges, judges evil, but surprises us with where it starts. It says, For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. If it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of Christ? How can God judge the world, friends, if he doesn't clean up his own house first? Well, having acknowledged God's right to test his own life, David now asked God to show up in the neighborhood. And the first thing David asked God to do in the neighborhood is a graffiti bombing. He asked God to paint grace graffiti on the fences. The NIV, which was read earlier, says, Show the wonders of your great love. What is David asking God to do? Well, I think first, he is asking God to do some underground art. He is asking God to reveal the presence of the unseen artist. God, we can't see you, but we will know you are here by the works you perform. David is saying, God, we can wait for you to judge things as long as we know you are here and you see and you care. We need to see evidence of your grace around here. We need to see your grace graffiti on the fences. Without evidence of God's presence, it's hard to endure and it's easy to begin to lose hope. When things are hard, the one thing we need most is hope. The second thing David is asking God to do is some countercultural art to reveal the presence of a different kingdom with different value system. The values of the kingdom of God run directly opposite the values of the world, and God calls his people aliens in this world. And that means our citizenship is not here. This is not where we belong. And taking on the world's value system is like trying to take out citizenship here on earth. 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17 passage you know well, but I'm going to read it from the message again. It says, don't love the world, the world's ways. Don't love the world's goods. Love of the world squeezes out love for the Father. I think that's a great expression, friends. Love for the world squeezes out love for the Father. 
Practically everything that goes on in the world, wanting your own way, wanting everything for yourself, wanting to appear important has nothing to do with God. It's just isolating you from him. The world and all its wanting, wanting, wanting is on its way out, but whoever does what God wants is set for eternity. David is asking God to leave evidence of a different world and a different way of living to encourage his people to keep living in a countercultural way, to live for the stuff that has little value in this culture, but will be of infinite value in eternity. Thirdly, David is asking God to do some identity art, to reveal the character of the artist king. You see, friends, graffiti is not art for art's sake. It's always about a name or a nickname. It always points you to the artist. Think about nicknames for a second. Maybe I should ask, does anybody here have a nickname? Wait a minute, let me change that question. Do any of you have a nickname that you can speak out loud? Nicknames are quite interesting. Um, They are given or taken to describe who we are or how we would like to be known. Uh, When I was a little kid, I grew up, uh, and my parents had a pool, so I spent all my time underwater, so as about a two-year-old, my parents started calling me Tadpole. It characterized who I was. Um, Think about fighter pilots, for example. You don't get on the radio and say, hey, Bill, hey, Mike. You say, hey, Goose, hey, Maverick. Hey, Viper! Why? (laughs) Because they have a handle. They have a nickname. They have a call sign that is supposed to capture some quality of their ability. It always points you to the artist. Graffiti is a call sign, friends. It's a handle, a nickname that tells you about the character of the artist. And when David asked God to paint grace graffiti on the fences, he's asking God to reveal who he is in the neighborhood. He is asking God to show his power and his mercy and his love in a world that doesn't believe he really exists. And the rest of the psalm is about how David would like to see God do that. It is a prayer for God to protect his people and to judge their enemies. You know, in the Old Testament, we find an astonishing example of God writing graffiti. The people of Israel were in captivity in Babylon because of their sin and idol worship. It was, the kind, it was kind of like having the hell's angels take over the church. Babylon was a nation of great violence and cruelty, and the people of Israel were slaves in it. And God basically said, okay, you want to worship idols? Fine. I'll give you your fill of it. You will find out what it means to live for your own desires. You will experience the degradation and the evil in men's hearts when they worship anything other than God. Well, after more than 65 years in captivity, the people had had enough. And they were praying to return to their land. They were praying for God to release them from captivity. They were praying for God 
to write some grace graffiti on their walls. And in October 539, the king of Babylon was a man named Belshazzar. He was the son of a great, the great conquering king, King Nebuchadnezzar. He decided to have a banquet with a thousand of his nobles, and he called for the gold and silver goblets from the temple in Jerusalem to be brought in, the goblets that had been dedicated to God, and they used them to toast the gods of Babylon. It was a symbolic act demonstrating the superiority of their gods over Jehovah. But suddenly, a hand appeared in the air and began writing graffiti on the wall, and it contained the following inscription, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. This is the historic event from which we get our phrase of doom, seeing the writing on the wall. This is where we get it from, friends. The king froze in fear, his knees knocked together. He called his wise men and astrologers to interpret the meaning, but no one could. And so Daniel, a servant of God, was called and offered a huge reward to interpret it. He declined payment, but he gave the meaning to the king. Daniel said, you set yourself up against the Lord of heaven by toasting your God with holy things from his temple. You did not honor the God who holds in his hands your life and all your ways. So here is what it means. Mene means numbered. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel means weighed. You have been weighed in God's scales and found wanting. Parson means divided. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And scripture tells us that that very night, Belshazzar was slain as the Medes and the Persians slipped into the city. You know what, friends? God knows how to write graffiti. He was writing on the walls long before the New York City School came along. If God wants to leave his mark on a person or a community or a nation, he knows how to do it, and he has the power to do it. And he is likely to do it in the most unexpected ways. And the very words that meant judgment for Babylon meant grace for Israel. And the beginning of their return to the land. The writing on the wall of the palace of Babylon was underground art. It revealed the presence of someone unseen. It was cross-cultural art. It revealed the presence of a different kingdom. And it was identity art. It revealed the holy character of the one who wrote it. So where, where do we look for God's graffiti today? Where do we see it? Because there are many days when I'm asking God to paint grace graffiti on my fences. I want God to show up in my life and in my community and in my church. I want him to reveal his presence and I want him to set some things right and I want him to reveal his love by fixing some things. Don't you? Haven't you got a list? <laughs> got any kids that are making bad choices in their lives? Got any marriages that need God's 
power and healing? Got any financial challenges in your life? I want God's justice and power to be seen. I want to see his call sign. I want the reality and the values of his unseen kingdom to be revealed on this earth. Isn't that part of what we mean when we pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Have you ever been in a situation where something was so familiar that you didn't even notice it was there? Like, um, maybe you had a dent in your car. And, you know, after a while, you just forget it's there. And then somebody, you know, you go to pick somebody up for a ride or whatever, and they go, oh, man, what happened to your car? And they see it, but you don't see it anymore. Do you ever have that happen? I was wondering, just checking. Um, or, you know, have you, had, have you ever had this experience? Um, you know, you're looking for a car, a new car, you know, a different car or whatever, and you go and you, you find one and you settle on this one car, you buy it, and you go home, and all of a sudden you notice everybody seems to be driving that car. I hardly ever saw it before, but now it's like there's tons of them. Have you ever noticed that? Sometimes God's grace graffiti has been there. We have just forgotten about it, or we're not looking anymore. Sometimes we need God to paint grace graffiti on our fences, and sometimes we just need him to open our eyes to the graffiti that's already there. So where do you look for God's grace graffiti? Well, I think one of the first places I look is creation. Creation. Psalm 19 describes some of God's graffiti for us. And in the opening verses of Psalm 19, it says this. And again, I'm going to read from, I'm choosing consciously to read from the message here. God's glory is on tour in the skies. God craft on exhibit across the horizon. Madam Day holds classes every morning. Professor Knight lectures each evening. Their words aren't heard. Their voices aren't recorded. But their silence fills the earth. Unspoken truth Spoken everywhere. It's talking about the sun, moon, and stars, friends, and how they speak. They are God's graffiti around us, speaking of his power and his greatness. Um, Professor Knight silently lectures us on the existence of an unseen creator who is known and seen by his work, by his graffiti in the skies. Um, one of my hobbies is astronomy. I mentioned that. Um, this is M13. Everybody raise their hand who knows about M13. I see one hand right there. Anybody else? That's a usual experience when astronomy is your hobby. Um, this is the big word, all right? You guys, you get this? This is a big word. You've got to remember this. Can you say this? Globular cluster. Say it, say it with me, guys. Globular cluster. Yeah, there you go. That's what that is. That is just a ball of stars. Now, this isn't outside of our galaxy. This is in the Milky Way, our galaxy, okay? There are a bunch of these globular clusters. They're out near the edge. You want to know how many stars they estimate are in that? 
five, about 500,000. They can't tell because you can't see them all. You know, they're just a big glob of stars. It would be daylight every, all the time if you were on a planet around one of those stars because there's stars all around you. 500,000 stars, just like our sun. You think of the energy and the power coming from our sun. There's a half a million or so stars just in this one little ball of stars that's out around the edge of our galaxy. Now, the next picture shows us what a galaxy looks like. This happens to be the Andromeda galaxy. This is the only object visible to the naked eye that is outside of our galaxy, the Milky Way. So when you go out at night, go in a dark sky place, and you see all those stars, that's all our galaxy, except for one possible thing. If you look up in the Andromeda uh, constellation, you see this little fuzzy spot, and it's the Andromeda galaxy. And um, there's actually two other galaxies in view there. Um, now, they think the Milky Way is very similar in size to the Andromeda galaxy. Got any ideas how many stars? Go ahead. Click, the, click it for me. There we are. Estimated to be about a trillion stars in one galaxy. A trillion. Friends, that's God's graffiti. Now, astronomy made a big mistake when they put the Hubble telescope in the, in the sky. Okay? And, and what happened was... Um, okay, wait a minute. We've got to stop for a second. Okay, when you want to see farther into space, um, what do you do? What's that? I heard somebody. Okay, make it black. Yes, it has to be dark. That's right. What else? If you want to see farther, what do you got to do? Okay, you got to get a telescope. And, and, you, and usually you want a bigger telescope, right? Okay. So they make telescopes as big as we can make them on the Earth right now um, and, uh, and things. But the reason is because it's trying to catch all that light and concentrate it at your eye uh, and things. But there's another way. What's the other way? Do you know? Go out in space? Yeah, that helps because it gets all the atmosphere out of the way and the turbulence. Okay, here's, here. if you wanted to catch water and it was raining... And what would you do? Get a bucket. Yeah, good. And if you wanted a lot of water, you'd get a big bucket. What else could you do besides getting the biggest bucket you could get? A bunch of smaller buckets? No, you only get to use one bucket. Sorry, that's a rule. What's that? A lake would help, yes. Okay, here's the, here's the, here's the trick. Leave the bucket out there for a while. Does that make sense? The longer you leave it, the more water, rainwater it would catch. Friends, astronomy, that's exactly astronomy to a T. They get the biggest telescope they can, and then the way they leave it out there for a while is use a camera and leave the lens open. Okay? Well, they took the Hubble Space Telescope, and one day they said, you know... We should really try to see how far we can see with this thing. So let's find the blackest, emptiest part of space we can find. And they pointed it there and they said, okay, let's just leave the lens open, leave the camera on for, um, let's see, how long did they leave this? 140 hours, 5.8 days. They just pointed at one spot and just kept sucking up the light. 
And this is the picture that resulted. Now, this is not the entire picture, but it's most of it, friends. And you want to know what they're seeing there? I know it's hard when it's, it isn't perfect here, but you know what they're seeing? There is only one star, single star, in the field, and it's that little spiky thing right there. That's in our galaxy. Everything, oh, by the way, the size of this is if you held up a dime and looked at it from 75 feet away, that's not quite the back of the sanctuary, but three-quarters of the way back, that's the size of area they're covering with this picture. And what's visible are, go ahead and click it for us, 1,500 galaxies. An area they thought was devoid of anything except one single star, there were 1,500 galaxies, like the Andromeda galaxies with a trillion stars in them each. Well, this wowed astronomers so much, they said, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? Oh, I got it. Let's do it again, but let's do it longer. And so they came up with the Hubble Ultra Deep Field image. This was taken, the first one was done in 1995. This one was done in 2003, 2004. The total exposure was 277 hours, 11.6 days. It covers an area the size of a nickel held up 75 feet away. And what's visible here are, there are no individual stars in this picture. There are 10,000 galaxies visible in this image. It's just a little tiny spot in, in the sky, friends. That's God's graffiti. God's graffiti reveals his identity. And the universe shouts his call sign, Almighty God. Quickly, a couple of other places I would look for God's graffiti. One is incarnation. That's just a big word that means in flesh. God became a man. He came in human flesh and he walked the earth to show us that God is here and what his countercultural kingdom, his upside-down kingdom is really like. It's a kingdom where the, the first are the last and the last are the first. Where the servant is the greatest of all. It's a kingdom where only those who come like children can enter, and those who think they know it all, like adults, are rejected. It's a kingdom where he who saves his life will lose it, but he who loses his life for the sake of Christ will find it. Reading through the Gospels is like watching a subway train going by. One car after another, each one splashed with a new graffiti mural that points us to the artist. One is sprayed with water turned to wine. Another is a painting of a stormy sea turned calm. Yet another is filled with the lame and the sick and the blind rejoicing over their healing. And on each picture is the artist's name, Jesus. Redemption. Redemption is another neighborhood where we see God's graffiti. In fact, I would say we see God's graffiti best at Golgotha. The cross is God's grace graffiti. It is underground, countercultural identity art. 
It is underground art because though the artist is rejected by the culture of his day, yet he is known by his work. And his work was to take the punishment for your sin and mine upon himself. His work was to write forgiven on our fences. It is countercultural art because it turns the Roman electric chair, their symbol of shame and condemnation, into a symbol of God's grace and forgiveness. In the values of God's kingdom, the king sacrifices himself for the people. And it is identity art, because the picture always points us back to the artist. It is a picture of his mercy, a picture of his grace, and it is a picture of his power over sin and Satan and even death. The last place I want to mention where God's graffiti can be seen is the graffiti that's walking around this church. You see, friends, his work is seen in lives transformed. His name is written on fences of flesh. Some of those fences were broken. All of those fences were dirty, shattered. But he has washed us clean. And he is repairing what has been broken. And he is turning us into his artwork, friends. We are God's graffiti. He is turning us into, get this, Counter-cultural billboards of the unseen kingdom of the Almighty God signed by the Creator Himself. That's what He's doing. He is turning you and me into billboards of the unseen kingdom of the Almighty God signed by the Creator Himself. So let me ask you a question this morning. Are you in need of a little grace graffiti in your life? Do you need to see signs of God's presence in your life, in your family, in your workplace, where you go to school, in your church, in this world? God's graffiti brings hope for the future and endurance for the present. It fills us with a sense of purpose and significance Because even though our lives may appear to those around us to be wasted on religious nonsense, the signs of another kingdom mean that we are building treasure that will last for eternity. The graffiti of the king means that the writing is on the wall for this world and its values. And so, friends, we need to see God's graffiti around us as we live out the counter-cultural values of his kingdom. Sometimes we need him to open our eyes anew to his works of creation and incarnation and redemption and transformation. We need him to help us see his marks on our own lives some days. But sometimes when the opposition is strong and the road is long, We need God to write his name anew on our lives and on our world. And so, like David, 
we pray. I call to you, God, because I'm sure of an answer. So answer. Bend your ear. Listen sharp. Paint grace graffiti on our fences. Let's pray. Lord, we need to see you and your work in our lives and in our world. And so, Lord, we come and present our lives as canvas for you to write your name on us to be seen by the world. We ask it in Jesus' name.